From Alabama to California, Maine to Texas, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the rate of inflation ticked up a bit in December. What impact will that have on plans by the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates? Patrick Horan from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here with analysis. Donald Trump rolled to an historic victory in the Iowa caucuses. What impact will it have on the presidential nomination process? Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. It is known as the Chevron Deference Doctrine, and it gives great power to the administrative state, but the United States Supreme Court could change that. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Caleb Kruckenberg of the Pacific Legal Foundation. And after Donald Trump's big win in the Iowa caucuses, is the race for the Republican presidential nomination over? On this week's American Radio Journal commentary, Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA says there are still many unknowns. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Inflation cooled somewhat during most of 2023, but there was a surprising uptick in December that could impact plans by the Federal Reserve to begin cutting interest rates. Patrick Haram is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He joins us now with economic analysis. Patrick, welcome to American Radio Journal. Patrick, we now have inflation numbers for the month of December, bringing to an end 2023. The Consumer Price Index, also the Producer Price Index. Can you give us a bit of an overview as to what those numbers had to show? CPI for December was a little bit worse than expected. Not terrible, but a little worse than expected. The headline CPI or the overall CPI rose 0.3%. That was a little bit above what was expected. What forecasters had been expected was 0.2%. And then the year-over-year number, the CPI in December relative to where it was a year ago, that was up 3.4%. And forecasters had been expecting 3.2%. Now, if we look at the core number, um, that is we strip out the energy and food categories, which are more volatile, it rose 0.3%. That was in line with expectations, and it was up. 3.9% from a year before, and that's slightly above what was expected, 3.8%. So, again, it was close to expectations, slightly worse than we had been expecting. And the Fed's goal is to bring inflation down to 2%. Now, the Fed uses a different metric for inflation. Their preferred metric is something called PCE inflation. But CPI is still, um, still a commonly cited metric, and it's very important to take a look at it. Now, that was the bad news. CPI was the bad news uh, over the past couple of weeks. There's slightly better news with the producer price index. So the consumer price index looks at prices that consumers pay. The producer price index looks at prices that producers pay for the things they they sell. And that had fallen 0.1%. So a, little, so a sell rather than a sell. And that was the same number it had been the previous month. The numbers are telling slightly different things. So as I'm sure listeners know, inflation rose quite a bit in 2021 and 2022. Last year, it fell quite a bit. We're still above We're still above where we need to be. And so a lot of economists think that a lot of the inflation that had been, to the extent that inflation had been supply-driven, a lot of that is has been unwound or it's been taken, it's taken care of itself. At least what one economist calls the last mile of inflation, which is more demand-driven inflation, that's the hard part, bringing us all the way down to 2%. So the Federal Reserve has made a lot of progress in bringing inflation down to its target. 
it's not quite there yet. It's possible inflation will fall all the way down to 2% over the next few months just because there's a lag from its previous interest rate hikes to the present. Um, but still not 100% clear that the inflation surge is over. Hopefully it will be in the, in the next few months. So the Fed is targeting inflation to bring it down to 2%, which we haven't accomplished yet. There have been multiple interest rate hikes over the last couple of years. The Fed had been signaling toward the end of 23 that the increases in interest rates were going to come to an end. We might actually see some cuts. Is inflation still on a track for that, or is this a situation where – Given the fact we went backward a bit in December, we might expect the Fed over the first quarter of the year, at least, maybe just to stand pat and see what happens. Yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance the Fed is going to have to stay pat, um, at least for the next couple months. So in December, they said that they were thinking about perhaps cutting its interest rate target, the federal funds rate, as much as three times in 2024. That could still hold true, but we would want to steal, we want to see a few more data points to really show that inflation is um, is still falling. The Fed should uh, wait for a few more data points before deciding that's okay to t- cut rates. Now, this assumes that nothing dramatic happens. I mean, suppose unemployment skyrocketed for some reason. I don't, I don't think that would happen. Let's, let's say unemployment rose unexpectedly quite a bit. Then, yeah, it would still be okay to cut because we would be expecting inflation to be falling on its own. Um, but as of right now, I don't, the Fed shouldn't declare victory too quickly. Taking a look then at those job numbers and the unemployment rate, I know uh, we've done some survey research at my organization, Patrick, talking to business owners and CEOs and finding enough of qualified employees to fill jobs has been a major problem for employers. Was there an uptick in hiring toward the end of 2023? In the last month, so in December, the number of jobs we saw, we saw an increase of 216,000. And uh, that was a little bit above expected, which is moderately good news. The unemployment rate stayed at 3.7%. So that's that stayed the same from the previous month. We did see in December that the labor force participation rate dipped a little bit, uh, dipped by 0.3 percentage points in December. That's just one data point. It's a moderately negative point. It means that people aren't there aren't as many people in the workforce as we would like there to be. Circling back here to the inflation rate, at the start of the run-up of hyperinflation that occurred over the last couple of years, Patrick, there was some thought that inflation was going to be transitory. While it appears to have been not so, looking forward, and of course nobody has a crystal ball, do you see the economy as being strong, being headed toward the so-called soft landing that the Fed wanted, or is the jury still out as to what may happen next? So I'd like to talk about the the transitory versus permanent debate that started at the beginning of the inflation surge back in 2021. Oh, inflation's a, it's higher than two percent, but don't worry, it's going to fall back to target because it's it's due to these unfortunate supply shocks like the COVID-19 pandemic and then later the, the Russia-Ukraine war. So yes, the inflation is painful, but it will go away on its own. And the the alternative point of view was this uh, so-called team permanent, team persistent view. Said no, no, no. It, it, there's a lot of the, there's too much demand in the economy and it's going to prop up prices. There's too much money chasing too few goods. So inflation actually it's it's persistent. See, these, these terms are loosely defined, transitory and permanent, but those are the, the two main views. Now inflation has fallen a lot since summer of 2022. Uh, again, it's above target, and thus far um, we see inflation fall with not much economic damage. So you do see some tre- team transitory economists saying, "Ah, we were right all along." Now, I take issue with that, though, because the Federal Reserve, even though they initially bought into this transitory narrative, they 
They then uh, changed tunes around the fall of 2021, where they realized, oh, inflation is actually a problem. So, as you said, they had to raise interest rates quite dramatically because the Fed decided to take the advice of the people who were warning that inflation is a serious problem. The odds are, are looking reasonable for that. But again, we would want to see a few more months of falling inflation before we can really say that. We have been talking with Patrick Horan, who is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center, located at George Mason University. Patrick, tell us a little bit about the Mercatus Center. Also, where can folks go on the web if they would like to learn more? The Mercatus Center is a university-based research center affiliated with George Mason University. And we are a research institute that looks at a, a number of economic policy issues. And we try to bridge the gap between academic ideas and real-world policy problems. We come up with market-oriented uh, solutions to, to a, a number of policy problems, including monetary policy, but also fiscal policy, housing policy, antitrust, and some other areas. Listeners can learn more by going to Mercatus.org. Patrick Horan of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Patrick, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Of course, he kept a very close eye on results of the Iowa caucuses. We have the New Hampshire primary coming up in just a few days, and we're going to talk about the state of the presidential race. Scott Parkinson, good to have you here. Well, thanks for having me back, Loman. Iowa, President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, managed to get over 50 percent. All the polling showed him with a substantial lead. That's, in fact, what's happened. So, Scott, does this change the trajectory of the presidential nomination process at all? Well, I think the trajectory has been and continues to be that Donald Trump is by far the front runner to receive the Republican nomination for president of the United States and face Joe Biden in November of 2024. And what we saw in Iowa this week was, I think, pretty interesting when you start to unpack the data and look at it in a historical context and then think about what that means for this election cycle. One of the big things that I would point out right away is that he did finish with above 50 percent, which I think was the first time in, in four decades that somebody has received that much support in the Iowa caucuses. Now, this is obviously a big race for Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and, and at the time, another candidate, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. And when you think about their candidacies, DeSantis had a narrow second place win over Nikki Haley by roughly 2,000 votes. And Haley was sort of surging in the polls. Some people thought that she was going to finish several percent above DeSantis. And was Donald Trump going to be below 50 or above? And there were all these questions from the prognosticators. And there was also a big question about what the turnout in the Iowa caucuses would be. When you go back to 2016, the last time we had a competitive Iowa caucus and Ted Cruz won, there were 180,000 Iowans that voted. And this time we only had about 110,000 people. And I don't think that that's necessarily a reflection of uh, drop in enthusiasm for, for candidates. I think it's something that you had uh, playoff games going on Monday night. Monday night was also Martin Luther King Day. You also had really, really big snowstorm that hit Iowa. So a lot of different factors there. But I think that the Trump team is incredibly excited about the path that they're on as you turn your attention toward New Hampshire. One thing I would also point out is there was this expectation, at least internally, through the Ramaswamy campaign, that he would get around 10%. And Donald Trump attacked him over Truth Social 
uh, the weekend before the Iowa caucuses. And Ramaswamy, in the end, only got 7.7%. And so on Monday night, he dropped out of the presidential race and enthusiastically endorsed Donald Trump. He's been campaigning with him in New Hampshire. And I think that that's a, a big development because Ramaswamy is the, is the type of uh, new generational leader that's bringing young people to the table that really aren't connected to a political party yet. And what that means for his support, how it translates toward going towards uh, Donald Trump or, or another candidate, something I think a lot of people want to watch. Republicans, of course, God, very rarely nominate somebody who hasn't been around the horn before. For Vivek Ramaswamy and also for Ron DeSantis, running this cycle and not winning, they're comparatively young. Are they setting themselves up to be the future of the Republican Party? Donald Trump is still the leader of the Republican Party, and he's going to have a big say in that with, you know, whenever he decides to hang things up, who he passes the crown along to. And Ramaswamy, DeSantis, their youth is important because I think it presents a bold contrast to people like Joe Biden, who are career politicians. But Donald Trump's not a career politician, right? He was an entertainer. He was a real estate mogul. He was somebody that's had a lot of success in really everything he's done. And on the other hand, you know that a political lifetime can be incredibly short. And I think that's part of why DeSantis ran for president in, in 2024, because the window of opportunity in his mind was open. And is that window still going to be open in 2028? I think it's way too early to say. And I think there will be a lot of new voices that ultimately are presented before the American people and could be competitive candidates as well. But the bottom line is, we've got history on our side when it comes to considering candidates and Republican Party has a deep, deep bench. And I think everybody just needs to be excited about really the opportunity that the policies we present over the policies of the Democratic Party that are really leaning towards socialism are creating an economic hardship on most families. So let's look ahead here for the last minute or two that we have, Scott. Now the attention goes to New Hampshire, where it's, is this sort of a do or die next couple of weeks for Nikki Haley? You have New Hampshire where she's hung her hat. And then we go to South Carolina, where Nikki Haley was governor. So does she really need to perform well in those two states to even be able to continue after that? Money will be a big deciding factor in that, right? Because even if you perform well, but you're broke you're then relying only on earned media. And I don't think there's any expectation that Haley's actually going to win either of those states. I heard a poll this week that said Donald Trump was winning New Hampshire in the general election by 13%. So the swing states, the competitive states for 2024 and the general election are all trending the right direction for, for Trump. And what Nikki Haley's campaign looks like or any other campaign, uh, is, I think, going to be largely contingent upon how much money they've got to do direct voter contact, especially leading up to March 5th and Super Tuesday. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, as always, a bit about the club, please. Yeah, Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. can join over 500,000 members from all walks of life, by signing up for free at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you, Loman. The power of the administrative state could be considerably reduced 
as the U.S. Supreme Court considers scaling back or abolishing the so-called Chevron Doctrine, which gives deference to bureaucrats. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns more from Caleb Kruckenberg of the Pacific Legal Foundation. You know, we're only a few weeks into the new year, but what happened at the Supreme Court this week, I think maybe one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing that happens uh, outside of the presidential election in American politics this year. Uh, There are a couple of cases dealing with something known as Chevron deference, and we're going to get into exactly what that is with my guest today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. That guest is Caleb Kuckenberg. He is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and uh, he joins us now on the phone to talk about these cases and to talk about Chevron deference. Caleb, thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you. Let's get into it, Caleb. Let's start with kind of the big thing I think that many people might be wondering is what exactly is Chevron deference? My understanding is that this is something that the government uses when it gets hauled into court to basically say, hey, we can do whatever we want. Is Does that more or less cover it? Uh, so, yeah, the basic takeaway of Chevron deference is the government wins. And the... <laughs> The sort of longer explanation is in the 80s, the Supreme Court said when administrative agencies, federal agencies are looking at statutes that Congress wrote, and it's not really clear what the statute means, then an agency gets to say what it thinks it means, and we will, as a court, defer to that. We'll just adopt the the agency's reasoning and say, okay, you guys know better. You have some sort of special expertise in this area. So it changes the the basic equation, the basic balance of powers within the government. It says that rather instead of the, the judges making a decision, they defer to the executive branch agencies. This is, I think it's easy to see where this could be problematic in lots of litigation, like the stuff that you guys do at, at Pacific Legal Foundation when you're suing the government, suing over maybe some of these things that uh, these rules that executive agencies have made. Uh, if you can just tell us briefly about the the two cases they were they're linked together and argued together, but about the two cases that went before the court this week. You're absolutely right. I mean, what happens is when you sue an agency, when you fight an agency, they pull out deference and they say, eh, "We win because you have to defer to us." And the two cases that are in front of the court right now are about fisheries. Uh, the the federal government required certain fishermen to have onboard monitors on their boats to make sure that they were complying with certain regulations. And there's just a question about whether or not the agency can force ship captains to employ these government monitors. And there was a statute that Congress wrote that wasn't really clear. The agency said, well, we think it gives us this power. And the courts below said, well, we don't know. We're not really sure. Uh, So I guess the agency wins. They can do whatever they want because we have to defer. So it doesn't really matter what we think as judges. And (laughs) as you said, I mean, that's not how courts are supposed to work. And I think finally the Supreme Court has decided uh, to get involved and say, "We, we have to fix this. This is not going to keep going the way it it's been going for the last 20 plus years. And you were paying attention to the oral arguments uh, this week. You were listening to them as they happened. Did you get a sense that there's at least five justices on the Supreme Court who are uh, appropriately skeptical of this? You know, what, what is at this point really like a decades old legal doctrine? 
Right. I, I think there is no doubt in my mind there's a majority. I'm sure there's at least six votes to, if not overturn Chevron deference, to remove the worst part of it. I think this the consensus really from the court is to say, you know what, it's fine if an agency wants to use its expertise, maybe its scientific reasoning or something, and it has something persuasive to tell us, we'll listen to them. But ultimately, a question of law and what a law means, that's up to us, and we don't defer to the agency. I, I think that is, there's no doubt in my mind that's what the court is going to say. You know, I think there's probably going to be some predictable dissents but even even during the argument, I think the defense of Chevron deference was pretty weak. And I think everybody in the room kind of understood that the, the doctrine is going to change after these decisions. We're talking with Caleb Kruckenberg. He's an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, talking about these two uh, big cases, cases that you will hear a lot more about over the rest of the year, I'm sure, cases that went before the Supreme Court this week challenging Chevron deference. Caleb, not a whole lot of time left here, just about a minute left, but I think we can't leave without asking the the follow-up question here, which is that, like, okay, if Chevron does change significantly or goes away entirely, what does that mean for 30 years' worth of cases that have been decided on the basis of it? Well, I think that is a real question, and it came up a couple of times during the oral argument, and I honestly don't know what the court's going to do, because it is going to upset a lot of things. There's a lot of administrative regulations out there that have relied on Chevron. Lots of cases have been decided. I mean, they continue to be decided, and those cases would all come out differently now if Chevron deference was gone. So I think there is going to be kind of an upheaval And there's going to be a lot of litigation about what this means and and how we sort of fix the problem that's been baked into the law for so long. Yeah, and definitely uh, putting the administrative state for sure on uh, on red alert, I would think, as uh, a lot of the things that they've been doing maybe for the past few decades suddenly will face new challenges. That's something we'll have to talk about another time. There certainly will be time to talk about that down the road after we get this uh, ruling. Caleb, we're unfortunately out of time for today, but thanks for joining us. Thank you. And again, that's Caleb Kruckenberg. He's an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Check out their work online. They do lots of spectacular work in this space, suing the government, challenging uh, unconstitutional and and illegal regulations. You can check out all that work online at pacificlegal.org. Check out our coverage of this case and everything else going on in D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Known unknowns means the race for the Republican presidential nomination may not yet be over. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA explains on this American Radio Journal commentary. What are the factors that will affect the presidential candidate lineup in 2024? As former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was fond of saying, there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. Most political pundits look at the one factor that happens to be right in front of them and try to prognosticate the entire complex six-month process of picking a nominee from that one data point. The factor of the week is Donald Trump's Iowa results. No one has ever won the Iowa caucuses by such a wide margin. No one has ever been so far ahead. No one has ever come from as far behind as both DeSantis and Haley are. Trump is already the putative Republican nominee. 
There are 2,429 delegates to be awarded in the Republican Party's process, and just 40 of those were apportioned on Monday. There are even fewer at stake in next week's New Hampshire primary, just 22. Taken together, those 62 delegates represent less than 3% of the total, and there are six months left until the Republican National Convention. That's a lot of opportunity for unknowns to assert themselves and upend the race entirely. Based upon one early poll this week, the always certain but often wrong Dick Morris said, News flash for Nikki, give it up, it's over. Real Clear Politics featured this from John Cass. After former President Donald Trump's huge, massive, and historic victory in the Iowa caucuses, the truth shall be known. The party is over for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley. USA Today asks, is the 2024 Republican primary over for good? Is Trump effectively the GOP nominee after winning just the Iowa caucuses? A Washington Post headline blares, Across the GOP, many see Trump as the likely nominee. Ben Shapiro writes, Donald Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee for president after a dominant performance in the Iowa caucuses. They're all wrong. The quoted opinionators are ignoring at least three very large known unknowns that could take Trump out before the general election. His legal troubles, his health, and future polling. His legal troubles are many and well-known. Will his support implode if he is convicted of one or more felonies? There are early polling indications that it might. At 77 and obese, is he vulnerable to a major health episode? The internet has been buzzing about some perceived weakness in one of his legs in the last week, suggesting that he may have suffered a minor stroke in addition to exhaustion. And if widespread polling this summer suggests that Trump would suffer a landslide loss of historic proportions in November, isn't it at least conceivable that Republican power brokers will use every procedural trick in the book to deny him the official nomination at the convention? And those are just the known unknowns. On the Democratic Party side, there are some recent tea leaves that may be read to suggest that Biden's grip on his nomination may be weakening, even while he remains nearly unchallenged in their primaries. No one expects Dean Phillips or Marianne Williamson to win, but the fact that they continue to register higher-than-expected support in polls demonstrates Biden's vulnerability. His known weaknesses are low approval polls and concerns about his age. But there's another potential candidate who could sweep in and win the nomination by acclamation as late as their convention, Michelle Obama. Did you notice the recent news stories about Barack Obama's worries that Biden's candidacy is in trouble? Ditto David Axelrod's well-publicized concerns? Both of those might very well be read as laying the groundwork for a Michelle Obama candidacy. The conventional wisdom is that she's not interested, but I think that's suspect. She might not be interested in campaigning, but would she really reject a call to run on the grounds that she alone could save her country? 
The Democratic convention will be a full month later than the Republican convention. That gives Democrats the advantage of certainty of who their Republican opponent will be. And if it's Trump or Nikki Haley, I think Michelle Obama would plausibly accept a draft to save the country from Trump or make sure that the first woman elected president is not a Republican. My advice to the listeners of this program is not to fall for predictions based on only one or two factors. The known unknowns are too many, and the unknown unknowns are, well, unknown. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WKTQ-FM in Oakland, Maryland, WJPH-FM in Cape May Courthouse, New Jersey, along with WJPH-FM in Woodbine, New Jersey. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.